This is season one of Betting On It, an eight episode series where we follow one betting industry startup on its journey to raise seed capital. Betting On It is brought to you by GeoComply, who provides fraud prevention and cybersecurity solutions that detect location fraud and help verify a user's true digital identity. Trusted by leading brands and regulators for the past 10 years, their geolocation solutions are installed on over 400 million devices and analyze over a billion transactions every month. To learn more, visit www.geocomply.com. All right, we are rolling with episode two of Betting On It, and this should be a good one. I'm joined once again by Drew and Sahil from Bets Booster, who, of course, are the subject of season one of Betting On It. Now, as excited as I am to have both of them back here for episode two, I'm possibly a bit more excited to welcome our first guest to the series, who is not only a successful industry founder himself, but somebody that holds the distinguished title of first ever guest on the Betting Startups podcast. Of course, I'm speaking about my good friend, John Gordon from Incentive Games, who joins us as always from his castle in Edinburgh. Don, welcome back to the podcast. It's been quite a while. So before we turn our attention to Best Booster, maybe you can give the audience a quick update on life at Incentive Games since you so kindly agreed to join my then non-existent podcast back in the fall of 2021. Thanks, Jesse. No, thanks, mate. Yeah, um, it's been quite a year or so for Incentive Games as well. So we've since solidified as ourselves as the number one free-play games provider and we sort of focus it on the, the tier ones and supplying acquisition and retention game to the likes of Bet365 and Flutter mm-hmm. and Live Score Group. So yeah, it's been qu- quite a, uh, a good year or so for us and uh, happy to join you back on the panel with Drew and Sahil, who I've been uh, keeping in touch with and trying to help out when I can as well. Awesome. Well, a great update. Uh, really pumped to hear about all the exciting things you and the team have going on at Incentive Games. But yeah, coming back to Bets Booster now, we wanted to invite you in as the first guest in this new series for a few reasons. You know, you're somebody that understands the betting product landscape in both the UK and the US markets. Of course, you have experience taking a B2C betting product to market yourself. And of course, you have successfully raised capital for Incentive Games, which, you know, Bets Booster is on their own fundraising journey right now. So taking all that together, I happen to think that you'll have some wisdom to impart on Drew and Sahil today. So the plan of attack from here is basically for me to shut up for the rest of the episode. And I'll let Drew and Sahil pepper you with questions for the next 25-ish minutes. So with that, I'm going to mute myself and hand the reins over to Bets Booster while I tuck into my coffee here. All right, let's jump in. Okay, so I guess the first question, let's go a little deeper on the B2C side of things, kind of warm up. At some point, you pivoted from being a B2C provider to a B2B provider. What led to that decision? And what would you advise for someone going into the B2C space without any intent of pivoting to B2B? Thanks for that, Drew. Yeah, we started as a fantasy football betting company, B2C. Uh, we got our own UK gambling license and, and built a brand, Premier Punts, from, from the ground up. And um, we, we didn't really have an intention to pivot to B2B, but we just uh, built our own products from scratch, uh, built our own user base from scratch. But we, we soon realized although we were the number one app in the UK app store, we had more downloads than the likes of Pokemon Go some weeks. We weren't making any money, so there were people depositing funds, playing against one another for fantasy football betting, and it was a really popular app. But we didn't see that being a, a sustainable business model on its own for what we were doing. Um, so we we got our sportsbook license and started to upsell from fantasy to sportsbook. And we were we did that very well, which increased the lifetime value of the overall customer from fantasy to sportsbook, increased it significantly. 
And then we got our casino license and we cross-sold from fantasy to casino. And again, very successfully. And then we took that business model on a B2B level. So, you know, we, you look at the companies that are, they're really exciting in the US and it's obviously a very acquisitionist focused sort of territory. At all times, you, you really just need to be proven your proof of concept, show that you can do things in a small scale, show you can acquire customers, show you can build products, show you can be innovative, raise funds, keep people within your ecosystem. So retention is key. Uh, we're connected through Yukai Chow, who's a master of gamification. So with a key focus on human centric design, which you, I know you are and your team are, and so are we. That's where you retain people. I think you're, you're going about it the right way. Are there any particular challenges that you ran into with your business model? I know you mentioned that you didn't think that it was super sustainable. I'm curious to know a little bit more about what, what indicated that to you. It, so it was, although we were, cost, we were acquiring customers extremely cheaply, so we could acquire a depositing fantasy user for one pound in the UK, which in 2016, 2017 was really cheap. Uh, we could then cross sell them to Sportsbook and get them a Sportsbook customer. So about 20% of those were converted. So that's really five pounds. We were having a Sportsbook user. And then from the original cohort, we could actually convert 10% to casino. So we were acquiring a casino user for like 10 pounds, which was extremely low back then. It's probably 95% of what the, the market value was. So what we were good at was acquiring customers cheap using a sort of fantasy product, they cross selling to high value verticals. And then if you looked at, um, although we were acquiring customers extremely cheaply for fantasy, there was no real sustainable business model for fantasy. In my opinion, worldwide, we, you look at, uh, at the time DraftKings and Fanju were losing a lot of money and the lifetime value was never really known versus the customer acquisition cost. And although we were acquiring really cheaply. That could only last so long that was increasing and we didn't know what the life day value of the customer was. So it made sense for us to, to look elsewhere when we saw that bigger companies had spent a lot of money trying to realize the value for the life thing value of the customer and not getting there. And we were concerned that it could never outstrip what the acquisition costs. And that, and that is a key yeah. thing for anyone. I think that's a key thing for anyone. Even if you, if you do the proof of concept, then you can realize that the lifetime value is higher than your customer acquisition cost, or at least in theory, as you grow to scale, you know, I think last quarter, we nearly had nearly a hundred million entries into our games in Q1 this year. I could tell you right now, you know, we could never acquire at the cheaply as we did back then in such a small pool. So as you scale up, the acquisition cost increases regardless of how good you are at. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, what trends and evolutions have you observed in the mature vending markets, such as the UK, that you would expect to then emerge in the US and on what time scale do you expect them to emerge? It's a good question. I think it's actually happening a lot quicker than one may expect. Like the, the big companies that are doing really well are focusing on getting the best European and UK talent over there as quickly as they can. If you can imagine. You know, bet MGM are using the brightest minds that Intain have ever had on all that experience. Fangio, though the Potter group in the US is using all the best minds and experience. And that flywheel that we talk about is all 
what we've learned in the UK, what they've learned in the UK, you know, through Skybet and Betfair and Paddy Power. So it is becoming, I mean, and then Bet365 are taking all of the knowledge over to the US. So there's only a few other companies that are there that aren't really, um, they don't really have that deep knowledge that are, you know, making it and they're taking a slightly different approach. If you look at DraftKings is a slightly different approach there, which is a bit more American first. But what you are seeing, I think that if you look at the fan duel, uh, compared to some of the UK, what the products are getting there a lot closer than maybe others may have thought. And it's really clean. It's ease of use. It's like, uh, what we have over here is bet builder you have in the US, same game parlay. And then what they've done really well here is we've got the bet builder, but here's, you know, here's five that we picked for you and they're doing that, you know, as you can see that in fan duel as well. So. Trust me, these big companies are moving as quickly as they can. And if you were to, as an end user, you can see what, what I see working with these companies is they've got a roadmap as long as my arm in terms of what they want. And it's the product people are very focused on, you know, what has worked in the UK. So I do, I do think it's, I do think it is getting there and that all the trends, like that people want to place a bet on the same game parlay and they want to not use the cognitive part of the brain. And if they see if, you know, a three-legged same-game parlor or whatever the different bookmakers call them over there, those are becoming really the dominance of casual betting plays that people are doing. I think those are, are going to be doing very well in the U.S. Quick follow-up. Uh, do you think that within what you just said about same-game parlays, is it specifically the same-game parlays that people like, or is it just having a curated set of bets that are easy to place? That's a good question. Like, so I will mention name, but I can sell with certain companies in the US and, you know, they were through incentive games, they're my clients and, and I love working with them. And there's this perception that certain product enhancements make the, the sports betting product better, like sharing a bet and, and all this personalization, perhaps that seems like personalization, but just adding a lot of clutter to the flip, the front end. And I don't know how much of that is, is actually true. There's there's a lot more that you can do by keeping the front end really clean and uh, curating a very smaller amount, showing the user a smaller amount. When you show the user too much, they get, uh, they feel stupid. And if you give them too many options, it's, it's not as good as, as having a fewer curated, smaller amount. And, and I, even, even something I wouldn't tell you which client, but I saw on the roadmap, which, you know, that this option to share bet slip. They share the bet and I was then what, what is your right goal there? Like, and they, and their, their, their response would have been, you know, all I see is screenshots of, and within my WhatsApp of bets that they've placed, but what is your hypothesis to rethink that it's going to get more bets? Because unless we have a data set to show us that, let's work on the things that we do know, which will increase active player betting days, which we do have evidence of that AB testing didn't work to get us out. There's a lot of good thinking going on on out there. And then you could also see that there's other bet naps in the US that they just throw everything they've ever thought onto it as quickly as they can, uh, even if it's half the ideas. And, and that to me is, is the wrong way to do it. Yeah, hundred percent. And to that end, we're taking the approach, trying to have like a thoughtfully curated, essentially like just lists. So the user just sees one thing at a time, you know, do this, do this, do this, that's it. And that's, that's why you. Well, I mean, I learned from you guys too as well. So I learned, you know, from 
the muscle that you guys are learning from in terms of like, let's not make them feel stupid. Let's just walk them through this, get them to that win state and get them comfortable with using your product. Let's not, you know, put them into the scaffolding phase too early because that can put people off. And often, often the problem with the scaffolding phase as well is if anything, Things can break. It's very complex. And the more complex it is, the more difficult it is to keep it up and maintain it. a lot more user journeys. Just keep it simple. Makes sense. Okay. Now I want to ask you kind of the inverse of the last question. And that is, in what ways are the US markets just fundamentally different than the UK markets? And what what are the consequences of that? Uh, yeah, I, I do specific product reviews for my clients that are from a free-to-play perspective or sport perspective. So I don't have the privilege to have grown up in America and known the fundamental differences. So the obvious fundamental difference from, from an outsider, from being Scottish looking in is, you know, you, you guys would build, you know, offshore betting is a primary focus and daily fantasy sports and all sorts of work around to get bets on and there's sites like Vegas Insider, which has you know, 10 million active users or whatever the case may be, but originally looked like until very recently, it looked like version one of a Yahoo site, which is, is very text-based heavy and to expect us to, or anyone to, you know, to just put a conversion metric on there and bring them to fault bet or something like that was, you know, that, that sort of site is being used by people that are betting offshore and, and they've, they've, they've been using that site for 10, 15 years and they used to have been looking looking and feeling how it is. So there's, you've got that shift of the offshore bouquet that better, sorry, that is used to just going somewhere to get in the news and getting it and, and going placing the bet offshore. And then you've got this new wave of, you know, Fangio TV and, and Fangio everywhere and, and, and DraftKings and, and all everything being above the board and looking after the, the customer first, which was another thing that I'm, I'm very pleased to see that America does very well. Uh, working with these companies, there is a real care for making sure that the customer is, is looked after, that we are not here to get as much as we can out the customer as quickly as we can. It's about entertainment and safer gambling. And it genuinely is because I've been working for companies in all over the world. And when I don't get a feeling like that, we, we often choose not to work with them sooner after. And there is a lot like that. But I do like the, the fact that there is a different feel for it in the U.S. They are genuinely looking after the customer first as well. That's really great to hear. I'm curious to know, like, what are the specific differences in behavior that, that you can see in America that sort of indicate that trend to me? The difference in behavior in America is, is it needs to be of the level of Instagram. It ne- if, if, you, if it is not at that level, what I'm talking about, you know, animations or easy to use and they will not return to store. You can never have more than three, four clicks to do anything. It needs to be intuitive and easy to use. When I say anything, you know, if, if you're playing one of my games, we, the first game we did in America, I think four years ago, click a fixture, there was eight fixtures, and to click a fixture, select the score, click okay, click another fixture, select the score, click okay, you do that eight times three, but four times, it doesn't happen. They, they drop off after three, yeah, so four or five clicks. So what we realize is that the Americans are a bit monetary high, but time poor. So we need to make sure that it's easy as use. It's the best of the best. You know, you look at the, the top products, it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, 
and they, they won't use anything that's not at that level. So you need to build products that are, that are at that level. Makes a lot of sense. It's certainly a goal we have trying to get there. Switching gears a little bit, uh, what advice would you have specifically around the fundraising journey? Since, uh, you know, you've already gone through that and that was the original context uh, we talked about a little over a year ago. All right. Just a quick break to let you know that on May 8th, GeoComply and City will be launching their Challenger Series New York City Summit, where some of gaming's best and brightest will be together under one roof. From compliance, product, payments, fundraising, and more, they will be sharing the hacks, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. So if you're an iGaming operator looking to enter the U.S. market, this free event is definitely for you. Access their on-demand video series to see what the summit is all about, which you can find by going to www.geocomply.com. What advice would you have specifically around the fundraising journey? Since uh, you know, you've already gone through that and that was the original context uh, we talked about a little over a year ago. Yeah, I remember I was trying to get you investor ready over a year ago. Yeah, and you did the selfless task of self-funding and which I commend you for up to now. But yeah, I think being investor ready is important. This is an exciting podcast, watching you guys go from episode one to two. Probably at the end of this, raising some funds off the bat, but really end of it by dear Jesse and the team. But yeah, you need to get your proof of concept there. You need to show your traction. You need to be optimistic, but also realistic. You know, we need to be aiming high, but whatever you're aiming, we need to see a realistic plan that you expect to get there. And we just need to understand, not we, but the investor needs to understand what your overall high level assumptions are. When I was raising funds a few years ago in Scotland's quite a conservative country, the finance back uh, base, the financial background, they don't want to invest in gaming for some reason, which I won't want to go into, but you're in a good space, hopefully, where a credible company uh, with credible founders like yourselves with really good backgrounds, which is another reason why I was advising you guys as or, or chatting with you guys at the start is the team itself, it's your background, it's your degrees, it's your experience. In this industry can go very far with a solid foundation. So we just need to see, you know, your message just needs to see the fundamentals of where you're trying to get to some traction and that you've got a good team around you and great advisors like Jesse and whomever that are helping you along the way. And certainly yourself, of course. Yeah. I'm here to help. Yeah. No um, I'm curious, uh, in terms of what you would suggest sort of focusing on as we try to communicate that message. One thing that we've sort of been trying to uh, thread the needle with is telling a story versus putting a bunch of like business jargon on the page, right? CPA, you know, lifetime value, et cetera. How much would you recommend focusing on those sorts of financial metrics? Like just in our, our attempt to communicate our, our vision, uh, um, versus just telling the narrative of the company. It's a bit of both, isn't it? You know, if, if I would advise, regardless of where you are in business, you, you know, have a 10 slide deck, a few words and just some bullet points or, or some visuals in each, but ultimately it's a story, especially if you're pre-revenue, you know, you need to be selling yourselves, selling your experience, selling your potential, but it's, it's a bit of both. And look, there's good people in the industry, Jason and I were talking about there that, that you'll be pitching to that they'll not often meet your servers, which have the experience that you guys have got and, and the, the, the results that gives you potential and what you're looking to do. So there will be some good excitement based on that. And then if you put your deck in there for your 10 slides or so and tell them your own story and your own words, in your own natural format, then 
I think that's a, a formula for success. I like the sound of that formula for success. That's what we're going for. Uh, shoot years again. And we, we touched on this a little bit before the podcast. So I'm going to circle back to it. In the UK, you mentioned that the relationship between matched betting services and the operators is sort of antagonistic. We are looking to sort of settle into a niche where we're cooperative with the operators. I'm just curious, based on your experience, what would that look like? What agreements and concessions could we have in place to make that a cooperative relationship instead of antagonistic? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I suppose to fill in the blanks there, we're talking about how there's, there's been in the UK, I'm aware of match betting's website. It's now called Outplayed, I believe, this model, which I've, I've not, I've not used myself, but I assume that they were using sort of sign up offers and bonus offers to arbitrage that green book betting. So you could bet on outcomes of the match in regardless of the outcome. And I assume that, I, I don't know if what the bookmakers would tag those accounts to be. I also know that there's affiliate market marketers in the UK that I, I closely work with and my company used to work with when we were B2C that they would social marketing, right? So they would do tips on Twitter or Facebook and they would do a challenge to get from 10 pounds to a thousand pounds. They would do lots of research and people would follow their bets. And if you followed their bets closely and did only that, you've got a decent enough chance to get far in the ladder, some win, some lose. But their followers also know that if you just follow their tips, they're asked, they're saying, just follow our tips and you may win overall. Um, so they'd have a symbiotic relationship. The social media affiliates as they're called, um, but I, I don't know if Outplayed or whichever other companies are like that. Yeah, it makes sense. You can sort of see the shape that such a relationship might take though, for sure. So that's an apt analogy. Yeah. the. I used to write algorithms for that type of com those type of companies to help them better predict tips for their followers to, to beat the bookmaker. And if we got the formula just right, you could, if you followed it exactly, beat the bookmaker, but it's such a huge following that even if you were beating the bookmaker, a lot of the, the guys would, and girls would bet on whatever they wanted on the side as well. So. It was a symbiotic relationship where the bookmakers ended to win overall. No, no. Right. That makes sense. There's a good uh, sort of middle ground where if a customer is breaking even, let's say year over year, you know, that, that, that can be sustainable. Like they win some, they lose some, they have a good time. That doesn't feel inherently uh, bad for anyone. Yeah. But then the overall account for that affiliate site, uh, the bookmaker and the fellow would be winning because you know, people bet on casino, you bet on all sorts of other things. And if you're not just following the tips, even if it was an even book on the tips, you're, you're in general, they're losing overall. That would be the sort of model. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm gonna make a, a left turn here. Uh, put Jesse on the spot. Well, what question do you most want to ask? We haven't touched on yet. That is putting me on the spot. <laughs> you sort of asked us earlier, Drew, some sort of re-asking the question to John, I guess, but like. John, you know, if you are Brewer Cycle right now and you're sort of where they're at and you're thinking about this sort of big go-to-market plan over the next few months, like what are some of the things we haven't talked about yet that you think they should be thinking about as they're not only taking their product to market and sort of a mass market approach, but, you know, getting investor ready, you know, building the team, like what are a couple of the main things that you would be thinking about right now if you were them based on where they're at right now? 
Yes, I, thanks, uh, Jess. I think uh, what we spoke about, I think the two things would be, I mean, I remember any time I speak to any startup or any company or anyone, I mean, even as big as my biggest clients in the world and the US, I'm always looking at the roadmap and thinking, can we get rid of that? Why do you need that? Like, I remember speaking to you guys and doing the same and it's like, what do you just get your MVP and getting it? But it's an MVP as an functional and works for your customer. Like if you've got your bet booster app, it's because your customer wants to make money on that app. They want to make use of all the offers that are available. Make that the core functionality and make it so intuitive, so easy to use. And if you've got anything on the side that you're not, whether it be leaderboards or points or anything like that, I would not focus on it whatsoever. Number two would be traction, right? So get talking to guys on Twitter, get looking at guys that have got and girls that have got 10, 20,000 followers that are making tips on Facebook or Twitter, whichever that are, that having a high engagement of followers and seeing if, you know, they're willing to promote your app. I think once you've got that MVP ready, just find little pockets of uh, social silly or whatever the case may be, where they'd be willing to do a tweet or a, a post for a few hundred dollars and see what your traction is on that. And then work out where your cost per acquisition is based on how much you paid and how many downloads you got and saying so that's the sense of what we did about seven years ago or in the UK. Right on. Drew Sahil, any sort of final questions or loose ends you want to tie off here before we let John go for this episode? Uh, not a question per se, but a comment on what he just said. We did kind of start to put the cart before the horse, you know, a year or so ago with building out game mechanics. And I think we have taken that feedback and really just tightened our focus on the fundamentals for the time being and kind of set aside a lot of the gamification stuff that we will do, but it's not yet time to start going. Thanks. No, I mean, everybody reads UK's book or anyone's book and then they, they want to add in all the bits. I have actually, I uh, added a bit of balance to that with you guys where I just strip all back, keep it as simple as possible. But, but I mean, a lot of, it, it's behavioral economics, by the way, that's what he's doing. That's what it is. If you want someone to conduct a certain behavior, they need to be motivated, have ability and have the trigger to do so. And I won't go to the whole conclusion, but you can talk to his motivation and that's really about what the key, key core drives, what motivates anyone to do any sort of behavior. But I focus a lot on ability, like how easy is it to do that thing? How much does it cost you? How much of your cognitive part of your brain that you used to do it? And that's, that's where it's cheaper to make it so easy to use as opposed to motivating someone to do it. And that's more than the scaffold of this motivation. So I would, I would always advise ability to, to be. Makes sense. Thanks for that. Awesome. Thanks. Well, I think, the, I think at this point, guys, uh, we've covered a lot of ground here in a fairly short amount of time. So uh, for this being the first episode of this series with a guest, I think we did okay. Thanks for setting the bar high for us, John. Really appreciate you joining the fun today. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Really appreciate it. Drew Sawhill, we'll uh, see you guys again next week with our next guest. And as a little teaser for folks listening, uh, the next episode will feature a bit of a deep dive on gamification, which we've spoken a little bit about through these first two episodes. So looking forward to that one. But for now, guys, thanks again. And thanks to everybody for listening. Bye for now.